You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Paul Sappho teaches at Stanford University. He's an essayist and researcher who explores the long-term consequences of technological change. Thank you for joining me, Paul. My pleasure. Paul, one of the interesting aspects of this conference is it's taking place in 2006, and there's a very important participant who is not here. That would be HAL 9000 Rev 2, the non-murdering psychopath version. 30 years ago, the best minds in predictive science and arts joined together to create 2001. That was Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke had a track record. He, he invented the communication satellite. And, and yet, there's no HAL 9000 in sight. Well, you know, even, even Arthur C. Clarke's ideas are not going to survive the wearing blender of the Hollywood business. And, and the proof is, if you read the original story 2001 was based on, it's called The Sentinel, seven pages long, elegant. You know, I love the movie 2001, but the short story was better. One thing that, that I found very interesting about your presentation here at the Singularity Symposium was you were one of the brave few who would actually talk about science fiction. You know, it's a funny thing about that because... Uh, Science fiction, it turns out, for me as a forecaster, it's enormously useful because if you want to see what 30-somethings are going to be developing when they're senior managers at companies, find out what they read when they were 15. And, you know, a disproportionate number of the atomic scientists on the Manhattan Project were inspired by H.G. Wells talking about super bombs and you know, everybody on the moon, moon program, both astronauts and scientists, all grew up with Buck Rogers and space opera. And the most famous instance of all, 1984 Neuromancer, written by Bill Gibson. He coined this really weird word called cyberspace. And it was this little idea bomb that dropped into the pond of culture, and the bubbles started coming up in the early 90s, and that word shaped the dot-com revolution. Science fiction is hugely informative because it inspires people when they're teenagers into the path that leads them to build what they build when they're in their 40s. One thing that that interests me about science fiction is that most science fiction writers these days will tell you that they're not writing about the future. They're writing about the present. That's absolutely true. Um, And, you know, speaking of Bill Gibson, his latest book, Spook Country, is very much about the present. And Neuromancer was about the present. And it's, it, that's how it always is, that we use the construct of the future as a distant mirror to talk about things in the present, whether it's you know, uh, Orwell writing Animal Farm or Gibson writing Neuromancer. That's how it always is. Could you talk about some of the current visions of AI Sure. Um, well, you know, one intriguing vision, I, I, I sound like Bill Gibson's book agent here, but one really intriguing vision of AI that hasn't got a lot of attention is the vision of a machine that exhibits in its intelligence by producing art. 
And my favorite book of Bill Gibson's was Mona Lisa Overdrive, where it turned out the intelligence appeared out of nowhere because in the international art market, these amazing sort of James Cornell style boxes were appearing and someone tracked down who was making it, but it wasn't a who, it was a what, it was a lonely computer in a space station. So these sorts of visions are the ones that I think are really compelling and much more fun than killer robots and dyspeptic computers like the HAL 2000. There was actually a Stanislaw Lem essay. It was an introduction to it was an introduction to the history of Biddick literature. This is literature that is written by supercomputers of the future that are asked to translate the great works of literature from one language to another. They're so high powered they can't be turned off and when they're not translating they end up generating more literature that's like the authors that the stuff the authors never wrote. Oh, that's a, I did that story's new to me, but you know, we've already seen that. We have programs out now that write music inspired by Mozart and other composers that isn't their music, but it sort of sounds like them. And this idea of computers generating original things is an intriguing one. A good friend of mine, Jaron Lanier, is not much of a fan of, of AI. Uh, and he, he finally came up with one application he thought AI would be good for, and that is preservation of information. Because we know information in digital form tends to evaporate if it's not used. And so he said, oh, this is great. We'll create a bunch of AIs, and we'll just have them hang out in cyberspace and have a conversation about the information. And then when we need it, we'll tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm looking for this. Go, oh, yeah, 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 here, here it is. Well, this is an interesting thought because these... Uh, more specialized AI programs that are used like by musicians and by artists, it seems possible that that may be the direction from whence the more generalized AIs that everybody's looking for would be more likely to come because they have that emotional artistic component that some of the more specialized AIs lack. Well, you know, I think it's too soon to call where general AI will come out of, but if it should arrive, I think that when it arrives, it will arrive from some completely unexpected corner. It will be something artistic or aesthetic, or it'll be some network of machines, you know, somewhere where somebody forgot to turn them off. And it'll just suddenly emerge and we'll all be astounded. And, and of course, you know, when it happens, it's, there's that wonderful cartoon in the 1950s that uh, Joseph Campbell actually mentioned at one point in the cartoon showed a UNIVAC computer and, uh, and a scientist turn it on, the lights flash, and, and the first thing they do, they ask it a question. So what should we ask? Said, Let's ask, is there a God? Question mark. It pauses, the lights flashes, time passes, and out comes the paper tape and it says, there is one now. One thing that, that interests me is the way that science fiction really has colored our vision of the singularity, and it's not been a good uh, portrait thus far, has it? Well, yeah, science fiction has colored our, our opinion of the singularity and fueled the notion of the singularity. Um, and, you know, the problem is that science fiction is, is, is it's got to be a good read. It's got to be entertaining, so it can't be boring. Well, remember Hitchcock's dictum that movies are reality with the dull parts edited out. Same thing is true here that the singularity intrinsically is put in high contrast. It's either, you know, this fabulous cornucopia of 
of fulfilled desire or this deep abyss of, of hopelessness. And the most likely outcome is it'll be somewhere in the middle. It's not going to be utopia. It's not going to be hell. Uh, it'll be sort of muddling through in, in much the same way that the vast promise of cyberspace of the early 90s today has matured into the reality of cyberbia, complete with the digital equivalent of crabgrass and crowded freeways and people doing boring things with, you know, bad jokes and pornography. I'm wondering if you could talk about this conference, the Singularity Summit. It's really born out of science fiction, but it's trying hard to leave it behind. Well, yes, it's born out of science fiction. This, this always happens. It's born out of passion of people who are visionaries, and science fiction is part of it. Um, but inevitably, those groups, as they exist, try to become respectable, so they turn their backs on their background. Um, the same way nanotechnology did that um, and had to become respectable by sort of pretending, you know, nobilities, uh, you know, the, the Japanese emperors came from a Korean background and, you know, everybody tries to forget their past and buff up their family tree. This happens with ideas too. Could you talk a little bit about how science fiction informs your work as a futurist and what you what you do on a day-to-day basis uh, well science fiction is a well first of all as a technology forecaster the most important and valuable tool i have is a rearview mirror and people generally speak with scorn about using rearview mirrors to predict the future. I can say after nearly 30 years in this business, rearview mirrors are great tools for looking at the future. Because beneath all the change are hidden constants, the nature of human behavior, the nature of human desires. How those things express themselves change over time, but the desires are still there and the logic and fabric of society is still there. Science fiction fits into that because science fiction tells us what's on the minds of the people who write it, and also because they swim in the sea of a culture, what's on the minds of the people who they are re- writing for. And as a consequence, a science, good science fiction book is like a time capsule from the past. And it's also a time capsule that's an idea virus that inspired people. For years, I've made the habit of asking different people, what you read? What, what's your favorite book? Examples are absolutely everywhere. That's why science fiction is useful. We've been speaking with Paul Sappho. He's a researcher with Stanford University. Thank you for speaking with me, Paul. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.